Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. I-P. With Massimella Matfumo. Mark Thompson. Get woke. I'll begin with coronavirus. That's the news driving the country and driving the world. We all know it's spreading. More than a thousand cases in the United States. And I'm going to be blunt. I've said this publicly. I'm very worried the president's incompetence, lack of focus, uh, is hurting us in hamstringing us in efforts. Uh, to address this public health crisis. Um, The best way to ensure, and he's focused, he seems to be focused more on the stock market than on the supermarket, to quote somebody, Stacey Abrams. That's one of her great quotes. Um, And um, so the best way uh, to ensure economic security for the American people is for President Trump to focus on fighting the coronavirus, not looking at some campaign issue that he might attach uh, to this. Uh, They should be putting people before corporations and take appropriate steps. Here are some of the things that Speaker Pelosi and I have called for. The House will pass some of them. We're going to expand our list. A group of us are meeting at 11.30 to talk about some of the things we would do Um, The uh, first, paid sick leave for workers impacted by quarantine orders um, um, and and care, and and not just for those people who can't work, but let's say you can work, but your kid is um, uh, uh, sent, the school is closed, and uh, your two-parent working family, one-parent working family, um, that ought to to apply to them. Uh, Enhanced unemployment insurance. Do it quick and do it fast for people. Um, who may lose their jobs because of the economic impact. Food security, both in terms of SNAP, but also many kids, their best meal of the day is their school lunch and school breakfast. We've got to keep and figure out ways. Debbie Stabenow is working on this in the Ag Committee, that the lunches and the breakfast can be delivered to people's homes if the kids are um, not going to school. Protections for frontline workers, healthcare professionals, Uh, those who are responsible for cleaning all the uh, facilities, free testing. And that doesn't mean just the test shouldn't cost anything, but the administration of the test. The doctor shouldn't be allowed to charge a uh, fee, you know, for coming into her or his office. 
Um, uh, they shouldn't add on all these extra things. If people don't think they can afford the test and they walk around the streets and maybe have the virus, that's a bad thing for the country. So we want that free. Uh, we want protections against price gouging and obviously increased um, capacity of our medical systems. I called the mayor of New Rochelle yesterday. That's the town. That's the suburban community that is uh, under his semi-quarantine. His biggest problem is no tests. And that falls at the federal government. Cuomo's doing a good job as best he can under those circumstances. So that's on. This is a very important issue. We have a plan. I'm going to touch on two more issues. We have so many issues we care about, but other people will cover them. One is health care and maternal health care. I think this is the number one issue for African-American voters in this election, and frankly, for all voters in this election. Uh, the protections that ACA has, pre-existing condition protection, are vital um, to African-Americans who, on average, have a higher rate of pre-existing conditions and are less likely to have insurance. Um, thanks to the ACA, and this was a major thing, the rate of uninsured African-Americans dropped by a third. They want to repeal it. They're going to court to repeal it. We're fighting them tooth and nail. And it's funny, when they go home, they talk about how they want to protect pre-existing conditions, and here they do, the other side does not, don't want to make this too political, but they do nothing to help us. It's just frustrating. Um, so that would happen if their lawsuit, their pre-existing conditions, millions of people would lose health care, uh, if their lawsuit happened. And finally, voting rights. Um, this, is the this is the wellspring of our democracy. And there's been a concerted effort to take away the voting rights of people of color and of poor people in general. Um, we believe protecting the right to vote, um, going attacking voter suppression head-on is critical to the future of the country. Um, the Shelby decision, I think, was one of the three worst decisions of this very bad Supreme Court. Uh, the other two being Citizens United, dealing with money in politics, and um, uh, Janice getting rid of labor unions. But uh, Shelby was awful. Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, the great caller of balls and strikes, said there's no more racism. We don't have to worry. We don't need to have teeth in Title V. And within one year, I believe it is, 19 states did pass restrictive laws that didn't have to be pre-cleared. So... Um, I sent, I wrote an op-ed on H.R. 4. You all know about that with Stacey Abrams this week. You have copies of it. H.R. 4 is a high priority for us. There's a lot more to say, but I'll leave that to my colleagues. Thank you for coming. So what we'd like to do, because we only have 45 minutes, is um, go around the table and each member of the press who is here give you an opportunity to ask a question, or if that's what you'd like to do, if you want to make a statement. But we want to make sure that each person, each member of the press has an opportunity to engage in whatever um, dialogue you'd like to, to, to um, pursue. But I will just mention that only 7.5% of the people in the newsrooms in America are African-American. 7.5. Um, Joy Reid is the number one show for her time slot for African-American viewers. What that means is that when we have black journalists, there is a very unique opportunity to then communicate with folks who may otherwise not watch Chuck Todd about the issues that they need to be aware of and that we want to make sure that we're also being responsive to. So with that, um, why don't we start with Jamila Bay? And we'll just go around the table counterclockwise. Okay. 
Good morning, Jamila Bay, BT Digital. Um, this is a pressing issue, as you're well aware, and I'm delighted that you're addressing it this morning. Um, when we consider the confluence of health um, and health disparities and the, and the reality that a lot of African-American journalists and ethnic media news is sort of kept out of a lot of the spaces where these issues are, con are concerned. Um, I, you know, cover health care. I can tell you how often I'm the only one in the room who can talk about CDC numbers or, you know, I, I'm a ringer and that my baby sister's a doctor of epidemiology, so I can get on the phone and find out what's happening. But the, the fact that there is a huge divide in this, I argue, senators, that this is a policy issue and it's a policy issue that we need to address in terms of getting out, in particular, health news information to communities of people that look as I do. And so why don't we, the way we do this, why don't we have anybody who wants to answer, senators, every senator doesn't have to answer every question, um, but it would be good. As much as we would all like. Yes. And, and if I can just say the beginning on top of that, what, what frustrates me, and I know uh, I've conversations with Kamala about it as well, is one thing that does not get covered in the United States of America in any way that it should is the massive health disparities we have between uh, African-Americans and white population. And this it ranges on everything from what's suddenly gotten a lot of attention is maternal mortality rates, uh, but all the way to uh, rates of prostate cancer. Um, and, and then also um, it, that bleeds into other areas from environmental injustice, a lot of the things that are causing uh, health concerns, to even the treatment we see that African-Americans get in the medical system uh, where we know uh, uh, complaints of pain are not taken as seriously and more. And so this frustrates uh, me so much. Uh, and I'll give you one last example of this, is uh, when I got to the United States Senate, I was stunned that sickle cell anemia, um, which affects so much more of a population than other illnesses and conditions that were getting so much more funding, but uh, something that particularly affected the African-American community just was not getting funded. And, and so it's that lack of coverage, the lack of pointing out of these savage inequalities uh, uh, that continue to exist within the healthcare system uh, that I think help to perpetuate the lack of action amongst, amongst Congress. So your point is, is very well taken uh, with me, and I'd, I'd like to open up to anybody else that might want to comment on that. Yeah, please. Thank you for bringing up this issue of infant mortality and maternal mortality. The most stunning aspect of this is that when you look into this issue, why we have such a dramatic uptick in African-American mortality, it does not correlate with age or income. It is race. It is strictly race. And we have got to change the Medicaid coverage in this state and this nation from two months after birth to a year for the mother and some fundamental changes in the communication between medical providers and the African-American community. I would just add briefly that it, it's actually two issues. It's race, meaning that black women are three to four times more likely to die in connection with childbirth than other women. And it does, it, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of educational um, level. Literally, you can remember Serena and her experience. Um, but but there, there are two pieces to this. There's that, and there's also the piece about black maternal health which has to do with the fact that black women disproportionately experience stressors that other women do not experience that also impact her health and well-being and the health and well-being of that baby. 
when you look at the, 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 the racial wealth divide in America, when you look at the fact that when she gives birth to her son, she looks at the fragility of that body, knowing that that body may never be safe in America. When you look at the, and you can go down the list of the disparities between African-American families and other families to see the unique stressors that black women face that also contribute to the rates we're seeing around maternal health and mortality. Thank you very much. I want to point out that Senator Casey has, has come as well. We're so grateful that he's joined us. I mean, we know that to the point of this, the statistics we've already mentioned that, and, and to the point that Leader Schumer also mentioned, when we look at black folks in America, from children to our seniors and families as a whole, uh, the disparities around health incomes are significant. And greater access to health care is always going to benefit everybody, um, and including our families, uh, in particular when you look at also the racial wealth gap, and you know that those families who cannot afford um, <coughs> health care, cannot afford insurance, cannot, don't have access to the money that allows them to have access to health care, then a Medicare for all type of approach is going to benefit black families and it's going to benefit poor families. But I haven't seen any specific data on how Medicare for all um, and the various versions of it affect black families in particular. I don't know if any of our colleagues have. So I, I just I just want to look, I, I, the, this is not time for sloganeering and in, 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 right, for me, it's just what, what policies are going to work to best impact black and brown communities. My staff uh, has a wonderful way of uh, holding up my past statements against me. I don't know why they would do that, uh, um, but uh, you know, humbly, yeah. But they went back into my Twitter account from the time I was mayor and found these tweets of mine, just really about the absurdity that, uh, as a mayor of a of a majority black city, that uh, so many of my of my constituents were getting their primary care in the hospital emergency room. We we have a vast crisis in this country. Uh, that we still are a nation that does not have uh, health care as a right, and that many people make a decision. I heard Kamala giving a speech when we were in Detroit, when we were in Detroit where she talked about that pain of sitting in a, in a parking lot, and uh, Kamala was saying that person that knows as soon as they walk through that door, they even have health insurance, but that the, they might not be able to afford uh, their deductible. And so I've watched in my community massive uh, um, health problems that could have been avoided if people were incentivized to go to the doctor regularly and have checkups. And so all the stuff that we were just talking about, these health disparities, you want to talk about how it protects the black community. I mean, I, I've got a black kid is, is 10 times more likely to die of asthma complications than a white kid. You, you, when I talk to my, my school nurses and they talk about the struggles that folks have just because of the fears that they're literally on the edge. They're already in arrears with their rent and, and facing uh, eviction and struggling to figure out if they can afford to keep their diabetes medicine. I had a, I had a, I had a guy tell me uh, uh, that about just like he's supposed to take it three times a day. He takes his diabetes, uh, he takes his insulin twice a day. And so I, I don't, you can call the label what you want. We are spending so much more money as a country for this broken system that doesn't work and gets worse healthcare outcomes. I'll, I'll give you one last example. I was sitting, I used to be on the board of Bloomberg's foundation, and I, I was the only black person in the room, and they put up uh, mortality rates for Americans based on race and gender. 
you know, black women, uh, Asian men, all, the, everything. And all the lines were had nice little upward curves. But for black men, it was, it was way below everybody else in terms of our life expectancy. And we've heard this already. It's been said now. It's, that's everything. Income, hypertension, stress. You can go through all the things. And so I just want to see my country ever, continue to move towards what I was calling for back when I was a mayor, watching the absurdity of watching my, my community with such horrible health outcomes uh, because they did not have universal access uh, to health care, to preventative care, to early detection, and more. Corey, can I say one line? Yeah, please. I'm Sherrod Brown from, from Cleveland. I, um, I'm the senior Democrat of the Banking Committee, which it's called Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs and Housing. Word has been left out of this committee's jurisdiction and, and activity for the last um, five years, essentially. Um, so much of this comes from lack of generational wealth um, because of Jim Crow and because of redlining, as you know. And, and uh, uh, even yesterday, this, uh, the head of the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, testified she's not brought one case of discrimination um, in, in the financial system forward since she took office. Uh, we have we are fighting every day on the affirmative furthering fair housing goals part of banking reform of housing reform and that's so much part of this where uh, you know where people of color simply haven't been able to build wealth for generations in large part because of redlining and housing discrimination uh, and all that comes with that. Thank you Sherrod and, and Catherine Cortez Masto from Nevada has joined us as well. Um, let's keep going around because I want to make sure everybody does have a chance to to speak. Um, Tia Mitchell from AJC. I wanted to keep with the health care theme and ask about the prescription drug bills. Of course, we know the House bill has not been embraced by Leader McConnell. And my question for you guys um, is, should Democrats be willing to embrace the Senate bill as a means of getting at least something done at this point? Senators? Prescription drug. She means the, uh, you mean like the Grassley. Uh, should there be, should you, should or should not? I'm, I'm curious how, what you guys think. Patty do you, or anybody. So our health committee has a bill that um, Lamar Alexander and I passed through that deals with some of the prescription drug pricing. The biggest piece of it is surprise billing. Uh, and we are working with the House on a compromise that we hope to have done in the next few months. Obviously, the White House is not going to allow us to do what we really need to do to address the larger prescription drug issue. But in my opinion, people are out waiting, and we need to make some steps um, to begin to deal with this and then tell them this is what the election's about. We, can't, we cannot give up on H.R. 3. No. Negotiation is this, will reduce prices more to more people than any other thing. So we're going to keep pummeling at that. The House has strong support for that. Um, there may be some compromises along the road, but we're never going to, we are never going to lose sight of the fact that we have to go much further than some of these bills would do. And the reason, the only reason the bills are not as good as we want is because our Republican friends are, the largest contribution to most of the Senate Republicans running right now is from pharma. Um, we also, most of the senators have brought their communications directors with us to this meeting. Um, Patty, as you know, is our ranking um, on help, which is through which the, that committee through which all the health bills come. Patty, do you want to introduce your comms person so that perhaps the journalists can follow up um, with you later? Obviously, one aspect of voter suppression is disinformation. 
And while all Americans are targeted, and we know that African Americans are disproportionately targeted, particularly on social media, um, would love to hear any plans, any agenda, any initiatives to address that as we get ready to go into November. And just short yes or no, um, how many of you, I know some of you have signed on to Senator Booker's reparations bill. If you have, if those of you who have not, when will you? Um, and lastly, if in fact it's true, uh, the tests for corona have been politically withheld, is that an impeachable offense? So disinformation, reparations, and the tests. <laughs> I'll start with disinformation. Vanita Gupta has pulled together a bunch of folks, leaders in civil rights, to have um, basically, they're starting to, to um, receive and then centralize the misinformation that is out there in a way that she's, she and her group is going to provide a service to all of us as senators, but also to journalists, to make clear what disinformation threads are out there and then what the response is. Because I share your concern, those of us who are on Intel, we know that, that the Russians targeted black folks in 2016 with misinformation. We also know that they were well aware of the fact that there is righteous distrust of systems by people who have been mistreated by systems. And so then feeding on that mistrust to create mistrust about the elections process in general and therefore to suppress the black vote is the intention. So we have to make sure in this election cycle that we respond to the misinformation as quickly as possible, but that requires that we know what misinformation is out there. Vanita is doing a lot of that work, and, and everyone should be aware of that. And you won't be able to count on the administration to tell you the truth about what is happening. We're already seeing signs that they are shading, censoring may be too strong a word, but they're certainly giving talking points to the intelligence community briefers who come to talk to us about what can be said and what can't be said. And that's an area where I think both you and we need to explore. I'll uh, take the reparations. I am a sponsor of Booker and um, uh, Sheila Jackson Lee's bill. Just a little story about how this all works. So a few years ago, we Senate Democrats introduced the Rooney Rule, <clears throat> which said for high positions, Art Rooney was the um, uh, owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was a progressive guy. He noticed a huge percentage of the players were African-American and almost no coaches, managers, uh, general, um, general, the top people were not. So he said that one out of, th if when you interview people for these high positions, you have to, one out of three has to be a person of color. We introduced it here in the Senate, but we went further. And we said, we're publishing the statistics. It was in fact, the Association of, um, of Black um, uh, Staffers that pushed us to do this. I got a lot of flack when I started doing it, but now it's worked out and our numbers have gotten much better, as have mine, okay? And so I have a, I have a significant number, most of my LAs, I think a majority of my LAs, which is the core of what we do, are African American. And we were sitting around talking about the reparations bill. And you know, for most of us, our staffs become our friends. They live with us. We spend lots of, you know, they live in our office. We work together in our yeah. office. I don't want to get. Yeah. <laughs> we work together. Right. We work together in our offices. We become close friends. We get to know each other, right. Right. not just half hour every Except week. You have a right to remain silent. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we were talking about um, the reparations bill. 
and here's what they impounded on me, which I live with every day now. It's, it was a mind changer for me. And that is that most white people, even white people of goodwill, see slavery as historical way back when. And most black people realize they're still living with slavery every day. When there's housing discrimination, when there's poverty, when they pick on African-American youth uh, in terms of criminal justice. And it changed my view. And I am a strong supporter of it. Mark, we're going to deal with uh, impeachment issues at some other time. We're still okay. suffering from trauma here. I do want to just say to Chuck uh, publicly in front of the media here, Brian Schatz and I went to uh, Chuck uh, early in his leadership and said to him that there is woefully inadequate numbers of African-Americans, minorities on Senate staff, Senate committees, gender diversity is not there. And he, with a great alacrity, said, "Let's. Do, what can we do to change it? He instituted the Rumi rule. Every senator now has to publish the diversity statistics. Um, and did more to make uh, it clear that this was a priority for Senate Democrats. The number of women and minorities on Senate staffs has gone up remarkably uh, since uh, 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 Chuck uh, got us to adopt that as formal rules of our, of our caucus, and I'm, I'm just grateful and the, for And them. the point on the reparations is the Rooney Rule is not just a nice thing. It actually affects how legislation works because you're getting a perspective that you need. Maya. <laughs> Hi, Maya King with Politico. Um, I have a two-part question. First, uh, last week the president elevated women, a few women and people of color, to uh, the task force to deal with the coronavirus. I wanted to know what you make of that and whether you believe that might create changes um, in those communities. And second, what the plan is to make sure that there's an equal amount um, of tests and healthcare coming to African American communities, because as we know, while tests are scarce, they're likely even more scarce. Um, in black and brown communities. I'm going to send that over to Patty. Yeah, and I'm, I apologize, I have to leave, but I will say this. This is why we're focused on making sure that there is no cost. In the uh, supplemental bill that we passed like last week, we put money in for community uh, facilities. Um, but this is something we also have to work on with our local officials, mayors, local county officials, to really get um, communications into uh, minority communities about where to get tests and where to get care, and that it's free if they go. We are not there yet. We do not have enough tests. I will tell you right now, no matter what you hear from Pence or any of the experts, they are not out there. So what I think the most important message to people are is if you are sick, stay home. We're working on the backstop here to make sure you get paid if you are home. Um, but right now, we are way behind the eight ball on that. Communication is critical. One thing we're trying to do is make sure that Hospitals in inner city in the poor neighborhoods get the same kind of benefit as everybody else. And we actually put 10 billion, 10, 100 million, we want more, to go directly to community health centers, which are in many of the uh, inner city communities, for this kind of free testing that we need. When we are past this one day, please, um, I think we really need to use this example of coronavirus to see the um, health care issues that we have in our country and how they impact people so that we can come up with the right policies and ways to make this work better. Right now we're in it, but we can't get out of this and go, phew, I think we really, ha this is our study. So, but it, Yes, and expand Medicaid. And also just, it, it, we know this on maternal mortality also, when we collect the data, it's going to be very important that we emphasize that people who come from those communities <clears> should be <throat> collecting the data and analyzing the data. Which is why the tests are so important. 
if we don't have them, we won't have the right data to make the decisions in the future, and that's what I fear has happened here. And we want to make sure it's culturally competent in the way that data is interpreted. Correct. Tina Smith has joined us from Minnesota. Aaron. Hi, Aaron Haynes. I'm with the 19th. Uh, thank you all so much for having us. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to try uh, to do like Mark and do a, a, a triple truck here. And sorry about Syracuse and the turnings, but nobody's really going to be able to watch it. Sorry about that, Lee Schumer. We're only good team. So on coronavirus, I mean, we know that disasters exacerbate inequality. And, you know, you all alluded to this a little bit, but I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit more about kind of who and what you're thinking about in terms of those communities that are vulnerable, uh, who could be impacted by this, even if they never get sick. Uh, and then on voter suppression, we talked about Russia, but like the threat of domestic uh, voter suppression. Why is that something that's not being talked about more, uh, you know, headed into this election? And, and I guess what can you all do to really raise the threat of domestic voter suppression uh, in, in communities uh, to, to make people understand the 21st century threat? We're not talking about poll taxes or bubbles on a bar of soap, right? Uh, and then also, I guess, kind of related to that, uh, the census obviously is getting ready to get underway. And I'm just wondering uh, what you all are doing to, to really get the word out to minority communities and how concerned you are about possible undercounts of those communities uh, in, in your district or in your state. All right. Okay, who wants to take that? And I also, just, I want to acknowledge Ben. Thank you. Go ahead. You were doing it. Ben Cardin. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> who would like to take that? Yeah. I want to just say one thing about that. Um, um, quite a few of us in this caucus have sent a letter to the Census Bureau asking them how they are planning and preparing around the coronavirus and the impact of the, on the census of the coronavirus. This is something that's really concerning because we already know that there is this um, likelihood of disproportionate impacts and undercounting amongst communities of color and, and poor communities, tribal communities. And then you layer on top of that uh, worries about um, census takers going door to door. And so we're asking uh, the Census Bureau for their contingency planning on this to make sure that we don't magnify the undercounting uh, in any way because of this virus. Tim Kaine and then Maisie Hirono. I'm going to just say a word about the voter suppression. It's amazing the African-American mayor of Kansas City, Missouri, trying to vote in the Democratic primary yesterday was turned away, uh, even though he had been on the ballot twice in the last year. He was turned away from voting. So we have systemic problems in states and local elections. Mm -hmm. We had a briefing in the SCIF yesterday on what the administration is, is doing on trying to deal with misinformation and foreign influence. And I think I can say, though it was classified, we were, we were deeply dissatisfied with both the descriptions of the efforts and the lack of candor about some of the things that are going on. Um, this is a tough area because, you know, Democrats want more voters and Republicans want fewer. The Republican business model is fewer voters maximizes their su success, more voters maximizes our success. So we, we deal with concerted suppression, state and federal level, as well as disinformation, hence the difficulty in fixing the Voting Rights Act after the Shelby case. There is good news going on in some of the states. I'll just brag a little bit about Virginia. We just flipped both houses of our state legislature from red to blue, and uh, along with many other reforms, passed a whole series of things to dramatically expand early voting uh, and give, uh, you know, re-enfranchise people and so I do think um, we're going to have a hard time getting bills through with a, in a Republican majority because they want lower participation. But when Democrats get the reins, one of the first things Democrats do is they really open up the opportunity for more people to participate. So, and Colin, uh, let me just add from, from the senators and what we're doing with the senatorial campaign committee because voter suppression is happening. 
So besides legislation that we're looking at and fighting with our Republican colleagues over this issue, we have to be in the states and we have to be aggressive. And so what we have done with the committee along with the DCCC and the DNC is we are in states, six states right now, uh, in courts litigating on voter suppression. From ballot order initiative to taking away early voting sites, we have been successful and we will continue to be on the forefront. We will also organize around those other organizations like Stacey Abrams Fair Fight, right? She's already identified the states where she's already put people in, in embedded in the infrastructure to really fight voter suppression. So we were going to be, I call it like this holistic approach. Besides what we do at the federal level, we have to be on the ground now and doing something about it. We are in the courts fighting it as a committee, and we will continue to do so. Um, and highlighting those, uh, those, that litigation. If you're interested in knowing about the litigation, we will happily give that information to you from the DSCC. Thank you very much for the invitation, and thank you, Senators, all of you, for, for showing up. Um, I guess this question is directed at Senators Booker and Harris, but any of you can jump in. And I'm focusing on the two of you simply because you both have run for president. And the conversation has been that the African-American vote is not a monolith. But since you campaigned around the country, I'm curious if you notice in your travels around the country regional differences in what African-Americans care about in the parts of the country that you campaign. So is it health care that was dominant in, that you heard about in the South or criminal justice in the West? Just wondering what you heard while you were out there. Um, we are not a monolith. And so, for example, when I was in rural parts of South Carolina, the issue was that those families don't have access to broadband. So their kids cannot do their homework without access to the Internet. Um, and small businesses cannot run without access to the Internet. Um, wherever I was, and I'm sure, Corey, we had so many shared experiences as candidates. Um, underlying all of it, I believe, is the issue of access to capital and access to economic health and well-being. You know, when we talk about, for example, what we hope to achieve in terms of safety and then therefore talk about the criminal justice system, well, guess what? Healthy communities are safe communities. Access to health care, access to economic opportunity, those are safe communities. And so the underlying all of it is what are we doing and what, and, and this is what communities want to know, what are we doing to make sure they have access to affordable health care, have access to job training, access to jobs, access to relief of debt, be it student loan debt, credit card debt, um, debt that is associated with home ownership, all of those things. But in particular, I think that um, it's a mistake when candidates think that all black folks want to talk about is criminal justice. Um, I have often said, you know, I think that, that there is, it's a mistake for us to talk about the Midwest voter <laughs> and, and, and attribute certain things to who that person is, because by the way, there are a lot of black people in the Midwest. <laughs> but also, it's a mistake to say when you walk into the black church, all you can do is talk about criminal justice reform. Or you walk into the Latino community center and all you're going to do is talk about immigration. Because the fact is the folks in those places still want to know about access to health care and access to jobs and economic opportunity. Corey? <laughs> <laughs> you later. <laughs> okay. So the House has passed a voting rights bill. It passed the Emmett Till anti-lynching bill. Can you talk about the status of that over here and what kind of impact is there to have any no in it? action over here on those important measures. 
I'm sorry, it was Emmett Till bill and which other one? And the voting rights to HR1. And the voting rights? So look, I'm sorry, this is very simple. Uh, on voting rights, very simple. Uh, if the Democrats regain the majority, uh, Chuck Schumer and, and, and Democrats will put a bill on the floor to, uh, for voting rights to stop the gutting, as you know, of the Shelby decision uh, that has caused so many cases all around. We just had a presentation from an attorney talking about from Arizona to Texas, there are cases directly uh, being taken to try to stop the direct targeting of African Americans and their access to the poll. Um, as far as the Emmett Till bill, no, this has passed through the Senate twice already. So we, we see, we've seen uh, action here, and my hope is, is that this is something that will get done uh, here in the Senate. It's been, it's been too long. This is, Kamala's led this charge with, with Tim Scott mm -hmm. uh, and myself. It's passed twice. We're trying to get it done right now, and we hope that we can get it done before this Congress is over. Kadia, hi. Thank you guys for having this. Um, so while I appreciate the responses around disinformation and elections, I want to talk about how, um, well, much of it involves like future hearings and projected um, actions. I'm wondering if there's any immediate stance as it relates to the current health crisis and disinformation. Is there a world where um, some kind of measure is wrapped up in... Um, I don't know, some supplemental bill that has already passed or will pass in the future, especially as it relates to the coronavirus. I feel like a lot of uh, African Americans and people of color are specifically targeted in terms of um, disinformation around this current health crisis. I'm going to shoot this perhaps about the coronavirus. I know we have one of our senior senators who is on help, um, Senator Casey, about the question about misinformation around the coronavirus and what might we be doing to, to address that. Thank you. Well, it starts at the top. I mean, we, we have a president who uh, I said on, I actually said it on television the other day. I said he's. Um, become completely unreliable in terms of communicating about. So I'd urge people just to disregard everything he says about coronavirus and actually direct them to the, to the experts. I think we have to, it's a difficult balance we strike because we've got to be able to be appropriately critical of what they're not doing. Uh, the, the, the whole debacle about testing is evidence of that. But at the same time, um, provide as much information as we can about our own states, our own, our own uh, communities, um, and what's available. But it's a, it's a very difficult balance to strike because there's so much to criticize and so much to be frustrated uh, about with regard to the federal government's response. Um, the, um, I think the feeling at home is that people just want basic information. Um, they want to know how they get tested. They want to know what's happening in their communities. And to a large extent, they're, they're becoming more and more reliant upon county health departments and, um, and, and professionals at the, at the local level. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but I, I think we've got a responsibility here to be a, both accurate and substantive, even as we're pointing where the federal government's failed. I mean... We're, we're, it's, it's just a, it's a very difficult balance to strike, but I think some of us are still struggling with that. Kimishi. Uh, thanks for having this. Yamiche Alcindor with PBS NewsHour. Um, 
the, I have two questions for both Senator Harris and Senator Booker, and one question for Leader Schumer, but it'll all be quick, I promise. And um, I wanna, I'm sorry, Gary Peters is here as well. We were really happy he's with us. Um, so my question is, you both ran as black candidates um, for president. What did you run into that you think still makes it hard for African-Americans and people of color to run for office, given, of course, that we had an African-American president? And how do you think that informs the disparities that black people continue to face in this country, given that the field obviously is narrow to, to know people of color? Um, and then for Leader Schumer, have there been any discussion about targeting resources to black and brown communities um, that might be impacted more, especially economically, by the coronavirus? Is there anything that, that might be done for those communities specifically? Why don't you go ahead first? Um, the targeting is aimed at getting money uh, to the community. Um, getting money to the inner city communities, which are largely African American. You can't target money in this way specifically by race, but you can put it in economically poor areas and in inner city areas and geographic areas um, that make a difference. And that's what our bills hope to do. Um, we talk about inner city hospitals, we talk about community health centers, we talk about walk-in clinics. And if it's free for everybody, obviously poorer people are most benefiting from that, uh, benefit from that more than anybody else. Um, so in that way, we are doing everything we can to see that every person can get these <coughs> tests for free and get the health care for free that they need. And then we look at uh, low-wage earners, people who have hourly jobs and things like that, and say they got to get reimbursed. So if they stay home, they get money. We've looked at food, how are we going to get food to people if they're not earning an income and they depend on food for their sustenance. It's a whole range of things which I think is pretty comprehensive. The administration is proposing, you know, this payroll tax cut across the board. That's not targeted at the people who need the help. And can, can you clarify? also proposed paid sick leave, that anyone who has to stay home gets, gets paid sick leave from their company, which is very important as well. And I'm not a whole lot of things. Was your question about voting, though? I think was it was it no, about it was no? The, well, that was my question to him was about targeting coronavirus to, Afri to African American and Brown communities. And then my question to you is about specifically what did you run into, and how do you think that that is um, connected to the disparities that African Americans face, given that there are so few Black elected officials in this country? So, so can I just say, with six minutes left, I, uh, Kamala and I could literally fill an hour talking about that issue. Uh, Short, maybe. Wait, so my, my only point is I, I will make myself available to you over the next 24 hours if you want to have a longer conversation about that. Is that okay? Yeah, and, and feel free to talk to yeah. like some like Rohini, who was my chief of staff, about you know the, the whole analysis because we got a whole lot of analysis that shows the disparities in terms of how we were covered mm -hmm. as compared to other candidates. A whole lot of objective analysis, including the fact that the brother to my right is a Rhodes Scholar. Did anybody write about that? You would have thought, I know, but you know, what I, but, but you know what I'm saying. You understand what I'm saying. You understand what I'm saying. And, and the, the question was, are you sure, Jermaine? Yeah. The, the, yeah. So, uh, so I, I'm sure we both have a lot of experiences about. Uh, and you think it's do you think that that's connected to the issues that African-Americans face in this country broadly? Do I think the coverage of black candidates is related to? The, the lack of representation of black leaders is related to the disparities that black yeah, people face. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah, that's, that's, that's clear. Of course, but also, the, the, back to the, what did I share with you? 7% of journalists 
are black. So back to the earlier story that I shared with you. Mm. Who's interpreting who people are? Who, you know, I, I will ask everybody here to engage in a really quick exercise. I'm going to say a term that has four words. And if you close your eyes, I'm going to ask you, what is the image that comes to your mind? The boy next door. And you will associate with that term all kinds of things about not only what he looks like, but his character and his life experience. Now, I challenge you to come up with four terms that is in our lexion, four words that is a term that describes Corey or me. You don't have it. It doesn't exist. So we had to constantly explain who we are as people and our character. Being a minority or woman candidate, I mean, I, I worked really closely with a woman candidate in 2016. Being a minority or woman candidate <laughs> is, is like the opposite of a performance-enhancing drug. You know, a performance-enhancing drug in baseball means your number of home runs goes up. You might have still hit some, but you hit more. Being a minority and a woman candidate in this country is the opposite of a performance-enhancing drug. Mm. Speed round. I'm sorry for the last three. Stacy, let's jump right in. Well, um, Thanks, Tim Kaine, for being a friend to the black press for a long time. We thank you. Senator Schumer and Senator Jones, we appreciate you as well. And your staff has been tremendous to us. We thank you. Um, so you limit me to one question, and it's going to be a doozy. <laughs> it's me too. Michigan, now, this is a black issue. We're talking about black issues, right? So the Manhattan District Attorney, and I quote, said, the mere allegation of rape should amount to a conviction. That's his quote. University of Michigan said 59% of sexual assault exonerees are African Americans. They said that based on erroneous convictions, a prisoner serving time for sexual assault is three and a half times more likely to, um, is three and a half times is likely to be innocent if he is black than white. Something must be done. Me Too is a great thing. Women have for so long suffered under the auspices or the powers of these powerful men who have taken advantage of them. But it's affecting negatively the African-American community, specifically African-American men. Is this something that the Senate can take up, especially when you have a, a pretty much a rogue DA making a comment like that says he's rogue? I don't think the Me Too movement is affecting the disproportionate and disparate impact of African Americans in the criminal justice system. I think racism is. You, you, you just gave a statistic about blacks being three times more likely to be innocent uh, for uh, accused rape. I can give you, you, you name the crime. Blacks are four times more, four times more likely. When you have a DA say that just the And allegation. I'm not justifying the DA thing. Is I'm just saying this conflation of the two, that, that could go from, the conflation of the two is, so I've been working my entire life literally since I was a teenager, uh, uh, about disparities within the criminal justice system. And, and we know the data on, uh, on uh, for, first of all, we don't need the data, how many black men during the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, were, uh, excuse me, 40s, 50s, 60s were killed yeah. uh, uh, because of false accusations uh, when it came to white women. So I'm fully aware of that. 
But to take a, a, a one comment by a, a, a man and try to drag that the whole Me Too movement into that comment, to me, sheds a scant light on the larger issue of the rape culture and the violence that's against women in this country that goes unreported, that, that, that does not get its fair treatment in the criminal justice system. And so I prefer not to conflate those things. I, will, I can sit here as a black man saying, I believe that we must uh, confront racial disparities in, 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 in treatment in the criminal justice system. And I believe the way the criminal justice system is right now, forget the criminal justice system, just the policies even of this institution when it comes to uh, 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 women reporting sexual harassment, the military. So the conflating of the two is, to me, uh, 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 not the way to approach this issue. And Stacey, just for time's sake, I got three committee hearings that started a minute ago, so I'm going to have to leave. But I know Eva, Eva, you, you got uh, the, still the chairwoman here as, as she continues. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, Eva McKen, Spectrum News. Some sad news this week that Troy Powell, who was released early from prison under the First Step Act, was rearrested on drug charges. Um, those who aren't committed to reform are going to use this to argue against reform efforts. Now, there have been thousands released under the First Step Act who have not been rearrested. But is there the proper infrastructure in place to make sure that people coming out in this high-profile First Step Act are going to be successful? How can you get more criminal justice reform efforts if uh, people are being rearrested after being released? I know. Well, I'll just, Corey's leaving. First Step Act was appropriately named. It's a first step. Criminal justice reform is a major issue for our caucus. It's also, it's, it's a social justice issue. It's a moral issue. It's also an economic issue. We hold so many African-American people back because of one thing that happened, and it's, it's terrible. So um, we're going to move much for I've told Corey and many of the others, Dick Durbin, Tim Kaine, Kamala, who have worked on this, prepare something bigger and stronger, because if we don't have to go through Republicans and a Republican president, we can get a lot more done, and it would deal with the rearrest issue that you talk about. Kamala, I got Oh, yes. I got one thing on just on a related issue. I'm getting we're in the developing a bill right now. We've written the bill, but we're making trying to get a Republican on this bill. We have a shot at a Republican, which is stunning. Um, but this would be automatic sealing for a simple drug possession, uh, of any kind of federal conviction. Uh, if we get that in place, uh, I think it's it's another step in the direction of achieving some measure of. Uh, criminal justice reform. It doesn't necessarily answer the question you're talking about, about those who are all, who are struggling with the aftermath of it, but at least having a bipartisan bill that uh, says for simple drug possession alone, you can have automatic sealing of that criminal record, which obviously can change someone's life when they're going to apply for a job or, or, or other, um, other endeavors in their life. So we'll keep you updated on that as we go forward. Uh, yes, Clyde McGrady with Roll Call. Um, you mentioned the Rooney Rule earlier, which I believe requires you to um, interview a minority candidate for each senior um, position opening. Um, but what's the uh, enforcement mechanism for that? And uh, have you talked to your Republican colleagues at all about instituting such a rule? Okay. Uh, I've mentioned it to a few Republican colleagues um, because it's worked 
pretty well on this side, as the statistics show. Um, I think what, or at least the um, uh, uh, black um, staff members, the name of the group is called, I meet with them all the time, but I forget the initials. SBLC. Um, uh, felt was publishing statistics would provide great pressure on people, and it has. We did it for a year without the statistics, and we didn't make too much progress. So at their request, uh, we initiated statistics, and it allows all of you to write that so-and-so or so-and-so has not a great record, and they may have a population that's 30% African-American, their staff is 10% African-American, or same Hispanic, Asian, gay, whatever, and um, it works. So I'd say the enforcement is the scrutiny once you have the statistics, and so far it's done a pretty good job of it. There were 19 senators here this morning. Uh, you all have lived busy lives, and, and we appreciate you taking the time to, to be here and to come here to share your concerns. Um, every senator, I believe, was here. We asked that they would have their communication staff with them, and they did. So we can follow up to make sure that you have direct contact information um, so that you have the access that you rightly um, should have to each of the senators to be able to get the information that you need to report on. Um, but thank you all for your leadership and for being here this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Also, subscribe to Make It Plain and Get Woke daily. Check out makeitplain.com to subscribe. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.